five, four, three, two, one. Lift off of the Falcon 9. Hi, I'm Mark Boucher, and this is the Space Q Podcast. Before we get to this week's podcast, I want to follow up on my introduction from last week. One of our listeners asked if they could make a one-time donation as opposed to signing up for a recurring monthly donation using Patreon. Absolutely you can. We have listeners doing that already, and we're grateful for their generous donation. To make an annual or one-time donation, you can now click the new donation link at the top of any webpage on our website. And just a reminder, we really do need your ongoing support to continue producing this freely available podcast. And of course, for those of you who prefer making a monthly donation, you can do so through our Patreon page at patreon.com slash spaceq. I also talked about feedback last week. We hear from you personally, and I'm grateful. We need more feedback, though. For those of you that have access to Apple Podcast, we really would appreciate if you could write us a review. Later this summer, when we launch Season 3, we want to crack the top 100, and your review will help. Okay, now on to the podcast. This week, we have another special recording from the recent Canadian Aeronautics and Space Institute's Astro 2019 conference in Laval, Quebec. In this podcast, we hear from Brigadier General Kevin Whale, Director General and Joint Force Component Commander for Space, RCAF, who talked about delivering the space objectives of Canada's defence policy. Some of the interesting points you'll hear include that Canada should consider creating a National Space Council similar to what the U.S. has. As well, it was clear by his remarks that Canada needs a national launch capability. It's not something the RCAF will do, but if there's a commercial provider operating in Canada, the RCAF will seriously consider using that service. And to make that point, General Whale said he would like responsive capability, meaning if they need to launch something fast, and I mean fast, an option is available commercially in Canada. Brigadier General Whale's presentation is available on our website. Listen in. Great opportunity for us to be here. We never, we never miss an opportunity to share our story. We honestly believe uh, by sharing as much as we can uh, with industry and ha- having that open dialogue, uh, the total is, is greater than the sum of the parts. Um, can I just get my first slide up? So what I want to do is, is give you kind of an update uh, where we're at in our journey. Uh, and please, if you have any good ideas uh, as we move forward or at the end, uh, happy to take questions. Uh, I'm going to talk a bit, kind of an overall program. Catherine's going to talk, uh, kind of represent our policy group and talk about uh, kind of the challenges and what we're working through on the policy side. Um, and then uh, Scott is going to talk about the uh, research and development uh, business that's pretty exciting. So the title really says it all about, about the theme of what we're working on. Accelerate, collaborate, defend. Accelerate because most of what we're doing is late to need. Either in our collaboration with allies, uh, the timelines for our projects, uh, the growth the growth of our capability in people and, and capability, 
Um, it's all it's all late to need. We can't go fast enough, and we're going as fast as we can. Uh, I, I can't imagine that we could do more than we're doing right now, but we we are focused on accelerating in any way we can. Uh, collaborate with our allies. I've I've worked a lot with allies over the years uh, in a lot of different uh, environments on the space file. I have never seen such a commitment by allies to work together and we're actually moving from collaboration to integration, and I'll talk about that. And then the defend piece, which is really occupying a lot of our times. We're two years into our defense policy now, trying, trying to really understand, we've been given orders to defend and protect our space capabilities. That's really not, we're, we're learning that's not a straightforward answer on what that means. Next slide. Oh, geez, I got a clicker, don't I? Do I have a clicker? Oh, here we go. There we go. So I'm going to talk about the four C's, and I hope you're not tired of hearing about them, but let's not take them for granted, and I'm going to try and give some personal examples uh, of what we, what we thought we were seeing and what we are actually seeing. Uh, that's really the foundation of everything we're doing. Uh, I'll talk a bit about our defense policy and, and how we're moving out on it. I'll talk about our, our, uh, how the RCAF is, uh, is leading this, this joint capability, and then uh, some updates on our programs. Congested, contested, competitive. Uh, you've heard this for years. Uh, it's a fabulous little, little uh, collection of words, but let me just give you my impression. So I've been in this job almost two years now. Uh, on the congested side, when I, took, when I started this job, there were about 1,500 uh, active satellites on orbit. Uh, now there's over 2,000. And if you do the quick math on that, we are now at a rate of approximately a new satellite per day going up into space. Uh, we are on a path to moving towards a launch per day somewhere, somewhere in the planet. Uh, I think we're at a kind of 150 plus now. We're moving in that direction. So it's pretty easy to see that we're, we're heading towards you know, thousands of operational satellites, uh, let alone all the debris issues. So uh, congested is a real thing. And it's a big deal for us. Uh, contested piece. Uh, it was about a month ago now when India did their uh, ASAT test, of which they argued most of that debris would, would, uh, would deorbit in short order. Well, in fact, for given a Canadian context to it, some of that debris was actually kicked into a, a sort of non-standard orbits, putting at risk, and we're monitoring this very closely, uh, RadarSat 2, which we use on a daily basis. Um, uh, a Canadian that's currently on the International Space Station uh, and other capabilities that uh, either are capabilities like Sapphire or Allies capabilities. So contested is a real deal. And that's just the ground contested piece. That's not even to mention all the stuff that's happening on orbit that we probably can't talk about in this room. Uh, we're really, uh, really diving into this with Allies and what that means and how we need to adjust. And the competitive piece, that's your business. Uh, I just had a meeting yesterday to, uh, for, uh, for, for one of our projects um, with our chief of force development and trying to answer questions on a project that's probably going to deliver in the 10, 15 year timeline. It's really difficult to figure out where you're all going to be at in 10 years. You're going so fast, we can't keep up. Uh, the innovation, the disruptive innovation, the integration of capabilities, it's actually dif difficult to to plan projects that far into the future, we're trying to, we're trying to meet that challenge by 
coming out with open requests. We need this kind of capability for 10, 15 years. You tell us how, how we could do that. Uh, that we're trying to open up the, the innovation, take advantage of the innovation that you're driving. The convergence of those three is way more than any one of them on their own. And of course it means opportunity for us. Uh, even if you look at you know, the bottom line, we can see almost everything. Uh, but the risk that's associated with that uh, also, also means a great deal to us. Um, I get questions about uh, even non-state actors. Uh, when do we think non-state actors may be able to you know, take advantage of space? Well, they already are. And if I use the example of the, uh, I think it was about a year ago, the Fitbit uh, data that was being posted on the internet, American soldiers running around one of their bases in Iraq, you could actually see the ring of where they were running because it was all published unbeknownst to their commanders. No one was really tracking this. It was being published openly. You could, actually, you could actually see when individual soldiers were doing their run around the fence. That's just a simple example of the kind of data uh, what we struggle with, with uh, some of the open data policies, um, people are taking advantage of that. And if we can see everything, they can see everything. Uh, try to move, in, uh, I've used this example before, I sympathize with my Navy, how do we move one of our warships around the world without your kids being able to watch it on the internet? How do, how do we achieve our operational effects like we used to when we would move and kind of covertly uh, pretty difficult to do now, and that's something we all have to wrestle with. And even in space, uh, we, uh, if we're successful in achieving a greater uh, space situational awareness, there's things up in space that are real highly classified right now that are not going to be so highly classified uh, not too distant in the not too distant future because everybody will be able to see it. Um, so these are the kind of things we're wrestling with. This really lays the foundation of uh, really informs everything that we're working on. Uh, two years now into this defense policy, strong at home, secure in North America, engaged in the world. Uh, there's that people line uh, that we're moving out on. There's the capability line in the middle, which the red uh, circle there is all the, the space business. And it really is embedded and core to everything in, this, in our defense plan. Uh, and then mo modernizing how we run our business. Uh, one of the challenges, given the size of my team, is I have never been involved in a portfolio that has so much internal and external engagement. Uh, because space is so embedded across everything that we do, either internally or with allies, uh, I had Catherine's team do an assessment. We were trying to kind of, kind of prioritize the things we were involved in. Uh, her team came up with 300 uh, engagements uh, every year. And you know we just can't sustain that, so we have to prioritize. But uh, space touches everything for sure. So of course the space objectives in that policy, we were told defend and protect. Again, sounds simple. Uh, is that defend and protect only military satellites, only Canadian military satellites? Uh, so right now we have one, Sapphire. Uh, we're, we're we're a major stakeholder in RCM. So I, I probably defend and protect RCM makes sense. What about all the probably 50 or 60 plus allied satellites that we use every day? Uh, what about commercial satellites that we leverage? Uh, and maybe that commercial satellite may be servicing 10 different nations, but it's a critical capability for us. Do we need to defend and protect that? Does the company want us to defend and protect that? Uh, all of those kind of things we're working through, and I'll talk more on that. Uh, invest in a range of capabilities. I'm gonna talk about all our projects. 
work with partners to promote uh, our national interests on space issues, this is, an excel this is definitely an accelerating piece. And I'll talk about uh, what, what we're doing with allies in greater detail. Provide leadership in shaping those international norms for responsible behavior in space. Uh, we actually have a very strong voice. And in some cases, a tempering voice, uh, where some nations are kind of focusing on, on terms like war fighting, we're talking about operational domain business. So we do have a voice, we are exercising it, and it is having an effect. And the cost, uh, cutting edge R&D that Scott's gonna talk about, uh, we have world class R&D, and it's recognized by our allies, and it's really uh, opening doors for us for the collaboration and integration that we have on the operational side. So we're working all of this. Uh, it takes more time than you would think, uh, but we're getting better every month. So defend and protect what? So it's not really, I could, I could focus on the satellites the, that are providing the service, but it's really these outcomes that we're, our mandate is to defend and protect these capabilities for our forces. Uh, we always have backup plans. Uh, armed forces can operate without this or in a de degraded environment, but it's not pretty. It's become, space has become so integrated in our business for missile warning, uh, surveillance, for doing precision strike, which is just a growing expectation, uh, the weather that we need to understand uh, for, uh, informs our operations, um, of course, communications, uh, position navigation and timing resiliency, uh, what's going on in space, and even you know, C3 systems. Pretty tough to do operations without this. So defend and protect what? Defend and protect this. Mission assurance and resiliency for my forces, that's our mandate that we're trying to figure out. And defend and protect how, all right? Uh, it's not just, uh, if you look at, uh, it's not just defensive operations. Everybody thinks about, you know, protecting satellites from missile launches and those kind of things. That's part of it. Um, but it's also things like reconstitution. We're now at every other environment I've worked in, we always had uh, asset, uh, assets uh, kind of on call. If you're in an operation and you lose an aircraft, well, we would pull up another one. We have backups. So same with the vehicles, same with maritime environment. Uh, we, need, we need to get to a point where if something is degraded and if it's critical to our operations, I need to be able to launch within probably a 24-hour period a replacement or a stand-in capability. And I think we're heading on that path. And then, of course, all the resiliency piece. You know, let's not keep putting up a billion-dollar satellite that sits in one space in geo that uh, half a dozen countries could take out in a, in a matter of minutes. We, we need to design into our systems, and this is another reason why we're going out with some kind of open-ended uh, RFIs of, you know, how can we do this? Is, instead of one satellite, is it a less expensive satellite every couple years? Um, is, it a, is it a LEO kind of proliferation? Is it a combination of commercial systems that provide kind of the core baseline data, but the more exquisite military piece is, is government owned? I mean, what's the right mix? And again, that's really difficult to see, but we need to look at all these things, uh, distribution, uh, diversification, on-orbit servicing is certainly going to be a real thing in the not-too-distant future. Uh, do I need to station spare parts on orbit so that if my system has a problem and if it's a critical system and I don't have the kind of diversification I want, I need something on orbit or, or, or that I can launch uh, to, to do a repair on orbit. We need to, we need to, we're definitely moving in that direction. We're trying to understand how we feed this into our policy development, our research and development, and into our projects. And then, of course, that yellow arrow, 
that uh, space situation awareness. I can't do much, my team can't do much defending and protecting if we don't know what's going on in space. And right now, we on, we're only tracking about 20% of what's going on in space. Uh, that's way too low. Um, if, I, if I use that example in an airspace control zone, like say here at uh, one of the airports, how, how happy would you be if, if you knew the control tower was tracking about 20% of the traffic? Okay, they can't really manage that airspace with a, a higher level of fidelity. So this is a big deal for everybody of how, how we get better at uh, situational awareness in space. So this is the kind of framework we're trying to work through and there's a lot of policy implications here as well. What are we allowed to do to defend? If, if we or an ally was gonna do something and it creates, it, it, it's, there's a risk of creating one or two pieces of debris, but it's a critical system that, could have, that will affect lives on the ground, let alone armed forces business, are we okay with that as a nation? Is it really zero debris? Now, if it's thousands of pieces of debris, probably we're not interested in that, but so these are the kind of things that we're working through uh, as you try to understand what does defend and protect mean? Uh, as well as a lot of R&D on, we do need systems now on spacecraft. Uh, things, uh, I use an analogy like electronic warfare on an aircraft. We need, s do satellites now need more self-generated situational awareness? Do they need self-defense systems even uh, like shutter, you know, automatic shuttering systems, uh, those kind of things. So we, we need to work through that. And of course, space, uh, nothing happens in space uh, that doesn't affect any of the other domains. So let's say something happens in space and I can't really stop it, but I could take out their ground station that's giving the signal to maybe a, an adversarial satellite. Are we okay with disabling uh, either temporarily or permanently a ground station, now say we're at conflict, uh, a ground station in, an, in a, another country that isn't in an area of conflict, but that station is being used to create a threat. Uh, that creates some interesting discussions with our, uh, with our legal and policy folks. We're trying to work through both nationally and internationally, what are the norms? So. We have to keep, uh, keep from falling into the trap of thinking, defending and protecting in space means do, doing things only in space. It almost always means cross-domain activity. Uh, cyber, for example. We may be able to, may be able to, be able to defend in, a cyber, um, in the cyber domain um, to protect something that's going on in space. And then there's this whole policy, legal, doctrinal piece uh, that we need to operate in. Of course, the laws of physics are, are number one. Um, a lot of people get excited about things that could happen in space, and I'm learning it's really not that easy to change planes and you know orbits and stuff in space. So let's be realistic about what the threats are in space. Uh, but then all of these uh, outer space treaties that existed for a long time, they were never designed for today's context. Uh, pretty tough to change them now, to get international agreement to change them. So we've got to kind of work within them. Um, and then all, all of our, our government regulations that we have to align with, those regulations need to be updated. Um, I'm currently in the mindset that it's time to start talking about a National Space Act, a single one-stop that kind of puts an um, one-stop umbrella over all of our space business as opposed to all of these stovepipes that we're trying to align. Um, and maybe we need something to align that. Maybe we need something like a National Space Council of some kind. Because right now we're being thrown in a room 
and we're being told all the stovepipes are being thrown in a room and we're being given direction to behold a government. It's like throwing kids on a soccer field and say, be a team, but there's no coach, right? So we've all, and we're trying to work through this, but uh, uh, this is the environment that we're working in. So in the middle there, we've got our defense policy. We've got, we've got uh, initial, uh, we've built off of our air doctrine to, for initial space doctrine. We need to update that. Happy to see now that we've got the, the um, exploration, imagination, innovation strategy. Uh, there's strong link, links there for the security and defense piece. Um, we need to orchestrate all of this as we move forward. So this is our mission statement. So first, what's going on in space? Space domain awareness. Uh, and then develop, deliver, and assure those capabilities all focused on our warfighters, either in Canada or deployed. Uh, we do this on a day-to-day -day basis, 24 and 7. Uh, this is what the organization looks like. Uh, we've had this organization, we took it over in the Air Force from 2016. So my position in the middle is dual-hatted. On the right-hand side uh, uh, is what some would refer to as kind of the organized train equip piece. So uh, Colonel Stoltz, who's in the audience, his team does the... Uh, uh, the requirements piece, running projects either in surveillance uh, or SATCOM. Uh, Catherine's group in the middle, all the strategic engagement, the plans, the links with the R&D community, the force generation piece. I've got a director that integrates us now into the horsepower of the RCAF for business planning and uh, HR management and all that governance business. Uh, report, all reporting to the commander of the RCAF. And you'll notice that the Army and Navy are embedded throughout this organization. This is a joint purple organization that the Air Force has been given the lead on. And then on the left is the component commander, uh, supporting mostly the commander of our Joint Operations Command, as well as Special Forces and uh, our NORAD commitments. Uh, and there's a NORAD group. We've got about 31 Canadians permanently embedded in about eight units in the United States. Our contribution for the space awareness business and missile warning piece of NORAD. And then my uh, Canadian Space Ops Center, my CANSPOC, uh, doing the day-to-day -day integration. So if you add all this up, in about eight years' time, this is going to be about 250 people, uh, including those 30 uh, in the OutCamp positions. Right now, I've got about 90. So we're, more, we're almost tripling the size of this organization focused on this. Uh, and we're currently on, on pace with our civilian positions. We'll have 10. Uh, the first 10, and uh, we've got three already, the, well, the next seven in a matter of months, and we're going to do 10 or 20 a year until we get to our 120 civilian positions. Uh, a week ago, uh, so we've had this for 20, since 2016. We really didn't change this organization. We've been beefing it up a little bit. Uh, but we need to know how we're integrating this into the RCAF. So about a week ago, Commander RCAF approved. What we're going to do is we're going to take this organized training equip piece and we're going to combine it on the air side. So right now we have a director general of air readiness. That director is going to become the director general air and space readiness. And he'll have an air and a space team. So that strat level readiness business. Right now we've got a director general for, uh, air force development. We're now going to have, we're going to move towards a director general air and space force development, supported by our aerospace warfare center uh, in Trenton. And on the op side, we're going to move to a space division. So we have, have the first Canadian uh, uh, air division in Winnipeg managing all the air business. 
we're going to it'll be a small division, but we're going to move to a division command construct uh, for the operations side. So right now, as the director general and component commander double-hatted, it is really sweet to have every, everything defense space under one portfolio. As the operational side is growing exponentially, it is not manageable to come through one individual. So like we have in all of our other organizations, it's a sign of the maturity of our operations in the domain. We're actually going to start uh, uh, reorganizing this for better effect. So of course, there's a wider enterprise that those people are working, uh, integrating with. Remember I talked about all that engagement? So with the RCAF in the middle, uh, on the op side, we've got the Canadian Space Ops Center. We've got a sensor system op center in, uh, in North Bay that manages the Sapphire data flow with uh, integrated in, into the Joint Ops Command that provides SA to the, the Government Ops Center. We've got individuals deployed uh, advising our deployed forces on what can space do for them and what can space do against them. Uh, and then, uh, of course, industry partners and other government departments, including uh, Space Agency, ISED, uh, Global Affairs, National Resources Canada, heavy dialogue. We work very hard to maintain those relationships. And on the industry side, we're actually talking about standing up in our CANSPOC a commercial integration officer. Uh, commercial, uh, embedded commercial capabilities are becoming it's clear, they're becoming such a part of our business. We actually want uh, that kind of trusted relationship in our op center, 24 and 7. Our, our information management group manages our satellite operations. Once the project is, is, uh, is implemented, they're actually managing that day to day. Our intelligence command are the ones that are dealing with all the data demand requests, of which space, space is a part of supplying that demand all of the other organizations internally that we, we integrate with. And then uh, this combined space ops group. So it started as a Five Eyes uh, organization. We just, at Christmas time, officially invited France and Germany to join. And Japan is uh, eagerly participating as an observer. And I expect at some point in the future, uh, they'll join this as well. This is really a growth business. And if you see the uh, combined space ops center in Vandenberg Air Force Base, uh, there's about eight or ten Canadians embedded in that ops center. What we're creating is a federated, a federated space ops center. So the allied SPOCs integrating through a combined SPOC so that if, if we need to do uh, synchronize uh, what, what we're all doing in space, we've got a center to do that. We've got policies in place. We're creating orders to make sure we have the right uh, authorities, responsibilities, accountabilities, uh, the right rules of engagement. Uh, we're moving out on this as quickly as we can. And here's an example. This is probably the, the latest. In April, we were at, a, uh, at the, the Space Symposium in the US. Concurrent with that, there was an Air Chiefs Conference where 11 Air Chiefs got together and talked about space business. Uh, space isn't under, the RC, uh, under air forces in all countries, uh, uh, but they've all got some integration. But if you read this statement, you know, uh, if, you, if you can imagine what it takes to get 11 countries to agree on a statement that you're going to produce publicly, we want the world to know we are collaborating. We want the world to know in some cases we're integrating. We absolutely want to have a deterrence effect for any potential adversary. Don't waste your time with a, with a very visible, very nasty anti-satellite uh, launch and activity. If you take out my, my allies' comm system, 
I'm going to share some bandwidth with them. So you will have achieved nothing, uh, and, and you will have created a lot of grief for yourself uh, and potential serious implications. So unequivocally recognize the strategic importance of space across all of those CSPO partners that I talked about. We are actively coordinating uh, to further this initiative. Uh, we want to enhance this collaboration. Uh, and we're dedicated to identifying future capabilities to support our common interest, interest through space. Regardless of what you hear, kind of from a political rhetoric point of view, there is no country that has any interest in conflict in space. Uh, get just the physics of it. Um, I've used the analogy before of why would I create a debris field that's going to take that orbit uh, away from, from myself or from my country for years to come. It's like dropping a minefield in an area that you want to drive through the next day. But it's probably even worse than that because of the, the long-term implication. You know, there's even kind of like nuclear deterrence kind of concepts coming into play here of, you know, countries are kind of posturing, but really no country has any interest uh, in, in conflict in space. Uh, and nobody in this picture has any interest in it either. We're, we're determined to keep this a peaceful freedom of maneuver uh, space. We're trying to collaborate to have that deterrence effect to make sure that that happens. Okay, update on where we're at. So of course when we talk about space capabilities, uh, we all have the tendency to focus on the shiny satellite. Uh, you all know in this room that it's all of these elements of a space capability. Uh, you gotta launch it. Uh, you got to command and control it. Uh, you got to deal with the network and the data management piece. Uh, the cybersecurity, you got to talk to your satellite, and nothing, nothing on a satellite has any value until information, data, and outcomes come down, down to a user somewhere on the ground. Um, probably the biggest area ripe for, for uh, evolution here is that bottom part, that network, that data, that TCPED. Uh, tasking, collection, processing, exploitation, dissemination, that whole data management piece, no question in my mind, we already have more data than we can handle. And there's no question in my mind as an organization, uh, I've probably got two parts of my organization. Uh, we find sometimes as allies, we're both asking for the same piece of data. If we find sometimes internally, uh, I find out maybe Intelligence Command is asking for data that we've already asked for. So we have to, this is a real area that we need to focus on and we're having a dialogue between Intelligence Command and my group. Should DG Space kind of own that piece or is that really an intelligence uh, management piece? Uh, but there's an area that's ripe. So all of our project means all of these things uh, and we're trying to uh, expand our understanding in all this. And by the way, so we're being very vocal. Uh, all of this capability, it's in defense's best interest to have a national capability. Uh, launch. There's been a, a, you're probably aware of examples as I am of where our programs have been delayed because we've been bumped. Probably wouldn't happen if we had our own national capability. Uh, the capabilities that we want to put on satellites, I don't want to be beholden to international agreements, although we will exercise that in, in any way we can much more helpful for defense uh, to have that capability in Canada to be the prime, to be the lead, to, to provide that integration. So ground station systems, everything else, uh, absolutely in defense's best interest, as it is in any domain, to have national capabilities. And we're actively advocating for that. 
Uh, just a quick reminder, so the way we run our projects, uh, on the left are the phases of our defense uh, uh, procurement uh, phases. That bar in the middle represents kind of a transfer of leadership. Uh, and if, I, if you look under the DG Air FD part, so there's the air piece. Uh, is my counterpart on the air side, they develop the, the identification and options analysis of the projects, and then they hand them over to the materiel group as the implementer to go through the rest of the phases. Uh, we still retain lead as the sponsor of the program, but that's how it's managed. On the space side, my team, uh, Colonel Stoltz's team, we develop the, pro the projects, and then when they get ready for uh, definition, we hand them over to the information management group. And then in some cases, and the RCM is a great example, we, all, we always have a dialogue with the Canadian Space Agency, our, uh, where are the win-wins in, in civil programs and defense programs? What, what are the limits of the, the collaboration? Where does it make sense? Where does it not make sense? Can I come back to defense policy quickly? If you look at the bottom part of this slide, uh, uh, this is just one way to represent the 20-year defense plan that we have right now. So if you can imagine a 20-year accrual envelope box with a fixed pot of money, albeit a very aggressive uh, pot of money, if you look at all these different programs, the gray ones there are my representation of our space projects that I'm going to talk about. Uh, across the bottom is the innovation, the ideas program. I'll talk about that, that in the next slide. But amongst all of that is fighter replacement, ship replacement, uh, uh, Army air defense systems, uh, all the personnel policies, uh, compensation and benefit issues that, that we're trying to resolve. All of that had to fit into that 20-year box. Every one of my space projects operationally should be earlier. And I get questioned, it's kind of fun, I get questioned every time I present for, through our governance system, uh, our project, I get asked, well, why, why don't you do that sooner? And I'm like, we can absolutely do it sooner. Industry can certainly do it sooner. My enterprise can't do it sooner. If I move a space, one of those gray bubbles to the left, which one of the orange bubbles gets moved to the right? It's a zero-sum game in moving that around. Now, we're designing every one of our projects so that if and when any of those other programs get delayed or rescoped or whatever, I want every one of my space programs to be ready to be pulled left. And they absolutely can be. And again, I know industry can move, uh, move quick on, on some of these capabilities. So we're, we're designing it that way. We're making it open to that. But this is the 20-year the plan right now. It's a blessing, but also a challenge as the, as the enterprise. And not even, not even just in defense. Things like access to Treasury Board uh, approvals. Uh, I may have, I get, uh, because of the gap, there the potential gaps in some of our capabilities, which none of us are happy about, I get, unsolicited proposals of, hey, we could give you this interim thing. Awesome, I'd love to do it. What treasury board slot do I bump? In fact, someone's gonna say, I'm gonna take that treasury board for your main project and we're gonna do it on this interim thing. So now I've just compromised the main project to try to do an interim thing. So this is the enterprise sort of context that we need to deal with. If, if you want access to defense, um, uh, to be involved with defense business, it's through one of our name projects or through the ideas program. We have no bandwidth or opportunity outside of that other than some of the uh, R&D stuff that Scott's gonna talk about. On the ideas side, uh, I imagine everyone in the room's familiar with the ideas program. So all of the environments put out these challenges, these things that we're most concerned about um, as we're shaping our projects and where we're going. 
Um, they get fed through this system. They get racked in stock. The S&T community leads it with us in support. Uh, companies and organizations make their bid. Uh, and here, I've, I've got this interesting thing that I think applies. There's a scoring process, and uh, we, some of my, my team is involved for, for the space uh, projects. We don't know, it's blind to us who the companies are, we just look at the proposals. And if you look at the upper right box there, there's an example of challenge number 13 that made it into the mix of a characterization identification of space objects. So there, were, there was probably 30 or 40 submissions. The initial phase, I think you, you can get up to like $200,000 to progress your, uh, your idea, your capability. If, if it goes well, if it shows promise, uh, I can go on to the next phase, which you see those three in the green that are, were actually picked up for the follow-on phase. I think it's up to a million dollars in another six months to a year of progression. We are trying to shape all of these to be, uh, to in inform and enable our projects. And you can, if you read through this list, you can probably see within my Space Ops Center on some of our projects that we're working on, we're very hopeful that some of these capabilities that we're helping move forward eventually end up on some of our projects once we uh, get to RFP stage. So I think it's a powerful program. Uh, and that there's a website, go back one. If you go to that website on the bottom there, it's all, all the information is posted there, uh, what's being worked on and where it's at. So projects. So here's where we're at right now in SATCOM. So you need wideband, you need narrowband, uh, and protected. So on the protected side, we've got a mature relationship and partnership with the United States on their advanced extreme high frequency system. We call it our protected military system. Uh, the only thing left to do is one or two antennas on, on a couple of our subs. So we have that capability. Uh, actually, they're about to launch, Cam, is it number five? The fifth satellite in that capability. So from a mission assurance resiliency point of view, we're very happy about that. Uh, very mature system that we're going to continue with for the foreseeable future. On the right-hand side for the wideband, we're, we're part of it. We're partners on the wideband global system. Uh, we call it Mercury Global, uh, and, and that's a very mature system as well. In the middle there, you see the, the tactical piece, and at the bottom, you see the, the SATCOM Operations Center at the bottom, in the basement of NDHQ. That's the team that actually runs all these programs once they're uh, procured and initiated. But on the tactical side, we're kind of ad hoc. We either borrow from allies or, or we buy commercial when we need it. Um, it it's functional, but it, it, it's not what, we, not what we need as we move into a, a mission assurance resiliency kind of context. So here's where we're moving to. In the upper left on the narrowband side, uh, we're now a few months into a foreign military sales case with the US Navy for their, uh, their MUO system. So basically a cell phone tower capability on a satellite. Uh, it's going to probably take us two years to work through that definition of how do they bring, we're the first ally on that system, the first and only allies, so we've got to create some crypto keys and those kind of things. Once that's done, uh, we're committed to this program for the foreseeable future. So it'll probably be another foreign military sales case for the first probably six to eight years. And then as that system matures, we want to move to an MOU arrangement so we're partners on that system as well. So now every communication capability in the Canadian Armed Forces is being uh, upgraded to integrate this kind of uh, capability. Uh, and then on the polar side, uh, um, we're just finishing the business case analysis for on the escape program. Uh, we've got to fix our communications in the north. It is way late to need. Um, most of you are aware of different projects that didn't uh, come to fruition. 
Uh, this, is, this, is, this is not acceptable anymore. We need, we need the same or similar comms in the North Pole and in our Arctic as you have uh, here in Montreal. That's, ki that's kind of our vision and our goal if we can get there. Um, a, a big deal for us, big deal for our allies. And if you look at the countries that are interested in there, a uh, lot of interest in the Arctic. Uh, Canada has a real opportunity here um, to create a, a system uh, that serves as not only us but allies. So I'm actually pretty happy with where we're going on comms. This is what it looks like, the whole program, out to 2040. Uh, in a defend and protect mission assurance resiliency context, there shouldn't be any red and yellow on this. So we need, we need to move from projects to a program. And the only way we can do that within our government system is for us to orchestrate our projects so that they effectively create a program but it's being driven into our requirements now. So we're not, for Sapphire replacement, we're not going out and saying we want another Sapphire-like capability. We want a capability for 10 years that has resiliency. That means it's probably gonna have to have ground-based optical and space-based optical so that if something goes wrong with one, we've got a backup, we've got some resiliency. We need to design resiliency into the system. We need to push the limits on design life of, of, uh, of spacecraft. Um, we can't just count on, it's probably going to, you know, cross our fingers. It's good. We expect it to, you know, to last twice, twice its design life. That's just not okay. We got to figure out how to create a resilient program, both for our own systems and where we, we choose to collaborate with allies. On the surveillance from uh, space piece, uh, obviously we're still exploiting radar set two. Through our Polar Epsilon ground uh, stations, we combine contracted AIS data to give that maritime domain awareness on both coasts. Um, and then, of course, uh, RCM uh, system. Uh, I, was, I had the privilege of being at the launch. I completely geeked out for two days. And it was, pro pro it was probably as interesting watching that first stage recover through the fog as it was for the, the satellites to go up on orbit. Uh, can't say enough about this system. Uh, thrilled to be a major stakeholder on it. Um, our allies are, are excited about what we're going to be able to contribute uh, through this system, um, and we uh, can't say enough about it. But if I, if I look, if I apply, apply the uh, today's context over this, please let's never launch all three, literally all three eggs in one basket. And there's a, there's a long history of how we got there, and it makes perfect sense when you look back 15 years. Remember, I said how, how difficult it is for us right now to look ahead 15 years. Um, if you go back through the history of this program, uh, which was beautifully led by, by our space agency, it makes perfect sense to how we got to the point where cost effectiveness, uh, the reliability of the rocket launches, everything, put them all in one rock. Imagine, imagine RadarSat 2 is four years past its design life, still working great. Hope it works for many years more to come. Imagine if there would have been a problem with the launch. And shortly after, if RadarSat 2 kind of... Uh, uh, phased out for whatever reason. We would have no SAR data unless we contracted or, or begged from our allies. That kind of strategic scenario, just we, we just can't accept that moving forward. So again, th this defend and protect means a whole lot of things to our projects and, and how we approach things. Uh, we've got to get our Polar Epsilon 2 uh, ground station system online so we can do the classified uh, data pull from RCM. Um, th that should line up probably around the Christmas time frame. So as 
RCM commissioning is done, you know, all the other uh, government department ground stations uh, will, will be providing the initial capability, but for our secret level capability, we need to finalize this uh, system as well. Uh, we're already working on our uh, follow-on to RCM. And if you look at the timelines, if I use RCM as an example, 15 plus years, uh, those systems have a seven-year design life. If I'm starting a replacement program now, I, I could end up with a seven to 10-year gap. So we're already late to need and talking about this. We're in direct dialogue, of course, with the, the space agency on the uh, Earth Observation Service continuity on where, where this will fit in the, in the ecosystem. Um, but we, again, we're late to need on this and we need to move out. Uh, and then the, the medium Earth orbit, uh, the MEOSAR capability, um, you, I'm sure you're all aware of the, uh, the transceivers that we're going to put on the next uh, US GPS-3 system uh, as our contribution to the COSPAS SARSAT international agreement uh, contributing to search and rescue operations as well as some ground stations. Uh, we've got uh, two of these uh, remote sensing systems, so uh, a couple portable units that we can pull unclassified data from all those satellites that you see across the top. The beauty of this is if you deploy it forward and if there's intelligence capability forward, you can reduce that latency of, of servers and a commander's requirements de uh, deployed. And because it's unclassified, we can share it with anybody that we're, we're partnered with, not just even 5i partners. Uh, We've got one in Bahrain right now. We had one in Lafayette. We just, we're bringing it home now. Uh, not sure about the future of this system. If reachback becomes so capable, maybe this isn't going to be uh, worth extending. Uh, should we upgrade this to, to feed off of RCM? Does RCM have enough capacity to actually do that? If we, even if we upgrade the system, if our RCM is so busy doing, doing its current business, that we won't, won't be able to fit in the queue, then maybe it doesn't make sense to upgrade it. So we're gonna exploit these for now, for now operationally and then see where we go in the future. Surveillance of space. So we've got, obviously got the Sapphire system uh, and then and the, uh, the NeoSat, Microsat system. Um, if you try to quantify, you know, one of the things that we're conscious of is uh, relevant burden sharing with allies. We get access I would say to trillions of dollars worth of data by collaborating with our allies. We got to make sure we're making meaningful, meaningful contributions like RCM, like we, we try to do with, with R2 and other things. And Sapphire is a perfect example. My team, my team tells me we're probably contributing in the single digit percentages of the total space surveillance network kind of output right now. You know, what, the strategic relevance of that is surprising. Because, because of Sapphire, other more capable systems are actually being reprioritized in other places. So as all of the allies are uh, increasing our appetite for space situational awareness, uh, this kind of capability becomes essential. Uh, the fact that a single collision or, or system failure on Sapphire could put us out of this con contributing to the SSN uh, until we get the follow-on program online, it's just not okay. Uh, and we've got a couple of things that we're working on to try and fix that. One of which is we're talking about a NeoSat 2, and there's an RFI on the street led by the S&T team. Some of those defend and protect capabilities and a follow-on. Um, we want to stay in this game. I need my operators uh, uh, trained on, um, on payload operations. We're very excited about this program, and we're teaming with uh, science and technology. The RCAF is teaming with S&T to fund and move this program forward. 
and again, it will inform uh, SFS2 uh, project design. And SFS2, again, we're going out with, we need 10 years of capability. It's probably going to have to have ground-based uh, and space-based. Uh, you know, what about a ground-based sensor in another country, uh, a 5i partner country, so that instead of just looking up in Canada through the same skies on the same day, maybe we can have someone in another, another part of the hemisphere. That's the kind of collaboration we're talking about in that CSPO group. Uh, and this is what the whole ISR program looks like at 2040. Again, all of these yellows and reds in the future need to go away. But this is what we're working on uh, for now. Our Space Ops uh, Canada, the CANSPOC, all the things that it's doing today, there's a uh, non-commissioned uh, officer or member sitting in our, our uh, Space Watch as we speak, linked with that uh, combined Space Ops Centre uh, in Vandenberg, 24 and 7. And in the future, uh, we want to expand this capability. Actually, we'd like to see our SPOC be a backup SPOC for the combined SPOC uh, if they're compromised in any way or if they need help. We don't just want to feed off that central SPOC. We want to actually contribute. And then navigation warfare. Uh, the one thing that really wasn't addressed adequately in our defense policy was P&T resiliency. We talk about the importance of, of, of P&T resilience or uh, navigation resiliency, but we, we really need to scope out uh, what do we need to do for P&T resiliency in access to different systems, into antenna design and all those kind of things. Uh, we really need to put some focus on that and we're standing up a team this summer to focus on it. So accelerate, collaborate, defend, that's the overall program and where we're at right now. And I think we'll hold for questions and I'll, I'll turn it over to Catherine. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the SpaceQ podcast. If you like this show, please support us on Patreon. The address is patreon.com slash spaceq. We really appreciate feedback. And to help us, we ask you consider to write a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music if you're so inclined. If you have any comments on this episode, you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode. If you send me a comment by email, I'll write back to you as soon as I can. On Twitter, you can follow us at Canada in Space and if you use Facebook, you can find all our articles and links to the podcast on our page, The Space Q. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app.